you have a Bible, you can open to Ephesians chapter 2. There are some notes in the bulletin where you can track along. And as we've mentioned a couple of times this morning, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to do that in the middle of the sermon, and we're not going to come by with the elements to pass those out. So if you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, uh, we made the elements available to you. They're in the back of the room on either side, and you're more than welcome to hop up and grab those as we begin. Here at the beginning of the year in 2023, we're spending nine weeks talking about the church. And we've spent two weeks already talking about what the word church means, week one. And then week two, we talked about the church as the body of Christ. This morning, we're going to talk about the church as the family of God. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about the church as a temple, a nation, as citizens, the flock, the field, and then the kingdom. So this morning, as we think about the church as the family of God, we're using family language. And there's a lot of different references in the New Testament that we could point to or that we could pull from. We could look at passages that talk about us being sons of God, and we're going to reference Galatians 3 in just a moment. We could talk about passages that talk about our adoption as children. We could talk about passages that include us in God's household or His family. So we're going to look at a number of these passages, and then we're going to settle in on Ephesians chapter 2, which means I want to say a quick word about Paul and the church in Ephesus. Paul, on his second missionary journey towards the end, planted the church in Ephesus. If you travel to what we call Turkey today, you can visit the ruins of ancient Ephesus. Uh, the picture on the top right is Main Street. That's where you would cruise the drag, Main Street in ancient Ephesus. And the picture on the uh, bottom right is the library. It's the face of the old library in Ephesus. On the left is a picture of Paul's journey. It's his uh, travels on this second missionary journey. He started in Antioch. He went through what we call Turkey. He crossed uh, the Aegean Sea, and he went to uh, Thessalonica, and he went to Athens, and he went to Berea, and he went to Philippi, and then he crossed back over to Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem and then up to Antioch. He spent two years in Ephesus. It was a long time for Paul to stay in any one place. You can read about Paul's time in Ephesus in Acts 19 and 20. And it was an action-packed two years. He met some disciples of John the Baptist who had never heard the rest of the story, the rest of the good news about Jesus Christ. He met a group of men who were trying to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And those demons turned on them and attacked them. And there was a lot of uh, power conflict, power struggles with the demonic forces of evil in Ephesus. There was a riot because the people who sold idols at the temple of Artemis were no longer selling enough idols to pay their mortgage. And they got mad at Paul because so many people had stopped worshiping Artemis of the Ephesians and they were following after Jesus. It was an action-packed two years. In Acts 20, Paul stops back in Ephesus. He had left briefly and he stops back in and he gives one final charge to the elders of this church. He had spent two years with them, and he knew that he may never make it back to Ephesus, and he was leaving the church in their care. And so in Acts 20, you can read about Paul's final charge 
to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now, when you think about the book of Ephesians, I want to share with you a quote. Because of space, I put part of it in your handout. So part of it's up on the screen, and then some of this is not going to be on your handout, but I'm going to put the rest of it up on the screen. So this is James Boyce in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, Ephesians is a miniature doctrine of the church, a short course in what theologians call ecclesiology. And there has seldom been greater need for a sound doctrine of the church than today. Now, that's what's in your notes. This is what he goes on to say. There is mass confusion about what the church is to be in our time, especially among so-called evangelical Christians, hence the need for a series like this. I sense that our problem is that we are too man-centered. We think of the church as being created and managed by us and for our needs rather than by God and for God's glory. It is precisely at this point that Ephesians is so valuable. Ephesians is about the church, but the place it begins is with the work of the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bringing it into being. I agree a thousand percent with Boyce that there is mass confusion amongst evangelical Christians in the United States of America about what the church is, what it's for, why it exists, who is part of it, what we ought to do when we gather together. And I agree with Boyce that in large measure, the problem is that we are very much man-centered people rather than being God-centered people. And Ephesians is a corrective. Ephesians is a glorious, glorious book. The opening chapters of Ephesians are filled with some of the most deep, profound, insightful gospel truths that you will find anywhere in the Bible. And they're filled with amazing pastoral prayers. Paul praying for the church in Ephesus. Prayers that can be a model for us. So if your Bible's open, I'll just point out in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If in your life you're looking for peace, a sense of peace, wholeness, completeness, rest. If in your life you need grace to cover up your sins and the things in your life that you're ashamed of, this book is about to tell you how to find them. Peace and grace. If you look at verse 3 to verse 14, those two paragraphs in the ESV in English, that is one sentence in the original language. And it's a Trinitarian sentence where the Apostle Paul talks about what God the Father did to save sinners. He planned salvation before the foundation of the world. That's what God the Father did. Then he talks about what God the Son did. The Son suffered and died to redeem us, to purchase us. Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts 20, 28, Paul to the elders of Ephesus. Take care of the church of God. God purchased it with the blood of His Son. Jesus died to purchase the church, and then God the Spirit comes along to apply this salvation to our lives and to seal us for the day of our inheritance in heaven. 
So then you look at chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, and Paul talks about the same good news, except he talks about it not from a Trinitarian perspective, but from our perspective. And it's very simple in how the passage plays out. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, he says, you are a sinner. You're dead in your sins. You follow your flesh. You follow the world. You follow the devil. You are dead in your sins. Verse 4 and 5, but God by His grace makes you alive in Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then you back up into the verses that I didn't mention, chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, and that's where Paul prays. He prays for the church, and he prays that the church would know the truth of the gospel and the inheritance that Jesus has secured on our behalf. So this is a beautiful passage, and it all builds up to our passage, Ephesians 2, verse 11 to 22. And the big idea, each week, these are not rocket science. You figured out where we're going each week with this. The church is the family of God. That's the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, a group of verses that talk about the church being the family of God. So, You can take your copy of the Scriptures. We're going to read, beginning in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came. And preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're thankful for the book of Ephesians. We're thankful for the gospel truth that we find in the book of Ephesians, for the prayer that Paul prayed for this church and that we now pray for our church. Father, we pray, Ephesians 2, 18, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches 
of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know on Wednesday nights we meet here at the church. Uh, We have kids down the hall in Awanas and the youth are upstairs having worship and Bible study and our college kids are right back behind us in the Stevenson suite and adults meet in this room. And on Wednesday nights, our services are fairly simple. They're fairly straightforward. We have Bible study. Right now we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray together. We have a time of corporate prayer. Usually we pray over a few different needs in our own church family. And then we also pray for other local churches and other local pastors. And the third thing we always do on Wednesday nights is we sing. We sing hymns. And the music is pretty simple. We usually just have Mark on the piano and Tony and Shannon lead us uh, with their voices. uh, And we sing hymns. And I usually pick those hymns. I pick them straight out of the Baptist hymnal, a hymnal that I stole from my home church many, many years ago in Amarillo, Texas. It has Trinity Baptist Amarillo, Texas stamped right on the front, and it sits right by my desk. And every Monday morning, I open that up, and I begin to look at the message, and I think about the hymns that we might sing on Wednesday night. Now, I know, having done these Wednesday night services for some time, that there are a number of hymns, a small number, but a number of hymns that when I pick them to be sung on a Wednesday night, I know without a shadow of a doubt that there will be people, older people, not old, just older, older people who will speak to me at the end of the service and they will tell me, you know, we used to sing that song all the time at Emmanuel. And those are special songs to some of you, songs that you remember singing over and over and over again on a regular basis. One of those songs is actually not a hymn. I hate to break it to you. It's not a hymn, but it is a more recently written gospel tune written by Bill Gaither. And I just want to play for you part of that song that is familiar to very many of you. So glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. sing that song on a Wednesday night, more than one person will say to me, you know, we used to sing that song all the time at Emmanuel. Let me just say a couple of things about that song in that video clip. Number one, I had never heard the backstory of that song until this last week, and I read the backstory online. It's a very interesting story about what was happening, something that was happening in the Gaithers' home church in Tennessee. Uh, where their church came together as a family, and they wrote this song 
in response. The second thing I would say is that as you look at that video and you look at the clothing and the hairstyles, if you just live long enough, you will look like that. Not exactly like that, but however you look today will look just like that. Some of us don't have to worry about the hairstyle part, but some of you, we're going to look back in 20, 30, 40, 50 years and say, can you believe they did their hair like that? Or can you believe they wore that kind of clothing? All those cool worship leaders you see on YouTube and Facebook and all that stuff, they're going to look exactly like that someday. So just give it a little bit of time. The last thing I want to say is that the words of this old gospel song are biblical words. The idea that Christians being brought into the church are part of God's family. And being part of God's family, we are family with each other. So let me just say, before we get to Ephesians 2, that this is a New Testament concept. It's just not, uh, not just an Ephesians 2 concept. So the New Testament, we'll start with this, encourages Christians to think about God as Father and other believers as family. So let me just give you three quick truths as we begin from the New Testament, and then we'll pivot to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start with Jesus. Jesus encouraged his followers to think about God as Father and to think about other disciples as family. This is Matthew 6. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. They came to him and said, would you teach us how to pray? He said, yes, I'll teach you how to pray. Here's how you start. Our Father. Our Father. Foundationally, when you come to God in prayer, you come with the idea and the understanding and the belief that God is your heavenly Father. And if you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you get to chapter 12, and some people came to Jesus, and they were debating who he was with, who he had time for. And Jesus made a very interesting statement. He said, look around you. The people who listen to me and follow me, my disciples, they are my family, my brothers, my sisters, my mother. Jesus is teaching his people from the very beginning, before there ever was an actual church, to think about God as Father and to think about other believers as brothers and sisters. Secondly, the grace of God, the grace of God in salvation allows sinful people to be born again as the children of God. It is only by God's grace that we can be born into his family as children. And I'll just mention two verses, and I'll put these up on the screen. John chapter 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We essentially sang that earlier when we sang, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John says a very similar thing in chapter 1. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How is it that someone could make this decision to receive Jesus and be born as one of God's children? Well, John explains it. Who were born not of blood, not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's not even your own will that causes this to happen, but the new birth, being born into God's family, is something that is of God. It's from 
God. It's a miracle that only God can execute. John says something similar if you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. How is it that we can be called God's children? Well, John says, 1 John 3, 1, the ultimate ground of that is God's love. God showed love to us, grace to us, undeserved kindness to us. And the result is that we can be His children. Idea number three, just thinking through the New Testament. By faith, we are united to Jesus and adopted into God's family as sons. By faith. It's only by God's grace and is only through faith that we can be united to Jesus and adopted into God's family as sons. So if you look quickly with me at Galatians 3, Paul says, Now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian. He's talking about the old covenant, the law. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You're all sons of God through faith. I just want to make the point as you look at this verse very quickly that there are some places in the Bible, some places in the New Testament, where it is appropriate to use a gender-neutral translation and to talk about brothers and sisters or to talk about sons and daughters. There are places where that's appropriate. Galatians 3 is not one of those places because Paul's making a very specific theological point about how we enter God's family. First of all, what he's saying is you are united to Jesus through faith. You are united to the Son of God when you have faith in Jesus, to become one. The picture, humanly speaking, that we would understand is marriage, where two become one. They're united together. Theologians talk about union with Christ. You are united to Jesus Christ by faith. And by virtue of the fact that you're united to Jesus Christ by faith, you are one with Him, you are then adopted in as a son. Why a son and not a son and daughter? Because you're united to the Son of God. That's Paul's specific point in Galatians 3. Union with Christ leads to our being adopted as sons. Now, that's a quick run through the New Testament, thinking about family language. What does it mean to be part of God's family? Look with me at Ephesians 2. What does Ephesians 2 teach us about the church? I want you to see three truths. The first is this. No one is physically born into the family of God. No one. Not Jew and not Gentile. No one is physically born into this family. Paul says as much in verse 11 and 12 where he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he very, very clearly says, You Gentiles, verse 12, were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Before the coming of Jesus, the Gentile people, left to themselves on their own, were alienated from God and separated from God. They were not physically born into God's family. Now, you may be thinking, so that means the Jews were naturally born into God's family. No, it doesn't. Because Paul talks here about the covenants and the promises. The only reason the Jewish people were brought into God's family is because God sovereignly of his own initiative made a covenant with them. Abraham did not come make a covenant 
with God. God went and made a covenant with Abraham. God brought those people into his family. No one is physically born into the family of God, not Jew, not Gentile. What Paul says in the book of Ephesians is that left to ourselves, we are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. And if your Bible's open, you can see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were spiritually dead in trespasses, violations of the law, and sins falling short of God's glory. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You're just going along with whatever the world did or thought or felt. You were following, Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a reference to Satan, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus said to this to the Jews in John 8 when they had this debate about whose father was God, and Jesus said to them, you're children of the devil because you do his will. That's what Paul's saying. You're following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived, Jew and Gentile. We all once lived this way, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. That's who we are according to natural birth. Alienated from God, separated from God in children, objects of His wrath. That's not very flattering, but it's true. And if you want to understand the glory of the greatness of the riches of the inheritance that Jesus Christ has purchased for you, that the Father has planned for you, that the Spirit is sealing you for, if you want to understand the weight and the glory of that good news, you first have to understand who you are left to yourself. And if you don't understand the truth about your sin, you will never appreciate the good news of the gospel. You will simply think of it in terms as, when I die, I want to go to heaven, that's it, so I pray a prayer, easy. But what Paul's talking about is something far more glorious than that. What Paul is saying is that left to yourself, you are an object, a child of wrath, and now you have been brought into God's family, which brings us to the second truth. We are brought near as children by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. We left off in Ephesians 2, 3. Paul gives us the bad news, and then notice what he says in verse 4. But, first the bad news, but now I have good news. But God. He does the exact same thing in chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. He starts with the bad news for the Jews and the Gentiles. And look what he says in verse 13. But now. Chapter 2, verse 4, but God. Chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The only way that a child of wrath can be brought near to God as a child and adopted into God's family is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's because on the cross, 
Jesus, the Son of God, willingly suffered and died and bled as a substitutionary sacrifice. He took the place of sinners. And he took the full measure of God's wrath for sinners on himself. And he shed his blood. Blood is this image of his death on the cross. And it is through the blood of Jesus, through his death on the cross, that you can be brought near. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, I would simply remind you that when a Christian takes the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, the Christian is not coming before God saying, God, I've had a pretty good week this week. I was seven for seven on devotions. I prayed before every meal. I didn't get mad at anybody on 42nd Street all week long. All in all, it's been a pretty good week. When you and I come before God to take the Lord's Supper, we are coming confessing our sinfulness and our neediness. We're saying to God, God, I need you every single hour. I need your grace and your mercy because I'm a sinner. And we're saying, God, I believe that you have brought me near, not because I'm a good person, but through the blood of Jesus. And notice what Paul says, Jesus' death gives us the promise of peace with God. Do you notice how many times we read the word peace when we read through this passage earlier? Verse 14, we have peace. Verse 15, we have peace. Verse 16, there's no more hostility. Verse 17, twice. He talks about peace, and he's talking about the peace that we have with each other, Jew and Gentile, and all of us brought into this family. We have peace with each other, and we have peace with God, and we have this peace because Jesus died for us, and he shed his blood for us. This morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin, and you've put your faith in Jesus, you've trusted in his finished work of atonement on the cross, and you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. So if you have the elements that you've picked up on the way in, I'll invite you to take those. We'll start with the bread. You can open the side that has the bread. And I'm going to read to you what Paul said to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open the side that has the cup. I'll read the very next two verses from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 and 26. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
One more truth that I want you to see. I'll just be honest at the outset here. This last concept requires you to think a little bit. Truth number three. What does Ephesians 2 teach us about the church? No one's physically born into the family. We're brought near as children by the blood of Jesus. Number three, our inclusion in the household of God is the result of the saving work of the triune God. The triune God. The God who exists as a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 18. It's a very short verse. In the flow of this section, it's easy to skip it and not think much about it, but listen to what he says. Through him, through Jesus, the one who bled and the one who died, through him, through Jesus, we, Jew and Gentile, all people, anyone who falls under the category of sinner, which is all of us, through Jesus, We both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about God the Son. He's talking about God the Holy Spirit. He's talking about God the Father, just like he does in chapter 1, where he says the Father had a role to play in your salvation, and the Son had a role to play in your salvation, and the Spirit has a role to play in your salvation. The Father planned your salvation before the foundation of the world. The Son died to secure your salvation. He redeemed you with His blood on the cross. And the Spirit makes you alive when you're dead. And He seals you for the day of redemption. He seals you for the inheritance that Jesus has purchased for you and that the Father has planned for you. That's the saving work of the triune God. Our staff right now is reading a book. It's a book about the Trinity. We just started reading it. Uh, We had our first discussion this last week. It's a book called Delighting in the Trinity by a man named Michael Reeves. And I just want to share with you one quote from the book. This is in the introduction. Reeves says, Because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. It's the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian belief thinking. The Trinity makes a lot of us anxious because it's different and it's hard to understand and the word isn't actually found in the Bible. It's rather a word that we use to describe what the Bible teaches on the whole and we come up with all sorts of ways to try to explain the Trinity or make sense of the Trinity and we tend to just cheapen the Trinity but listen to what Reeves is saying. He's saying this is the governing truth of all Christianity, of all Christian faith. It's the cockpit of Christian thinking. It's where the controls are made, as it were. The direction is set. And it's something, according to the title of the book, that we ought to delight in. Delighting in the Trinity. I think it's a pertinent quote as you think about what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 verse 18 in this surrounding section. I want to acknowledge what Paul says in verse 19. He says here in verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. That's another metaphor for the church. You're citizens. You're not strangers or aliens, but you belong here. You have residency among these people called the church. We'll talk about that later in this series. 
It's a beautiful idea. In verse 20 and 21 and 22, he talks about the idea that we're being built into a building, a temple for the Holy Spirit of God. And it's an amazing thought. It's something that we're going to talk about next week. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, a building as it were. Not a physical structure, but you understand the metaphor, a building that God has built for His Spirit. But here, what we see in this passage is something far more beautiful. It's not more true, and the others are less true, but this is a particularly beautiful, beautiful truth. There's a unique beauty in the truth that God is our Father, and other believers are our family. We who are children of wrath, who are separated without God and without hope, have been brought near to God in peace and adopted into His family as children. How does the Trinity fit into that? What the Bible says about the Trinity is that from the beginning, and this is where you really have to think, from the beginning, for all of eternity, God has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, He is one in essence, and He is three in person. There's only one God, the one true and living God, and He eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That means before God created this world, He was not lonely. He was not waiting on you and me to show up and keep Him company. He was not bored twiddling his cosmic thumbs, wondering what to do with himself. But from eternity past, he has always existed, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a perfect Godhead, a perfect union of relationship and existence. What Paul is describing here is that according to the plan of the Father and according to the work of the Son, And according to the sealing of the Holy Spirit, you have been brought into that family. The family of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God has brought you into His own family. You are part of His household. You who are an enemy, you who were a stranger, you who were separated from God, have now been brought near to God. It's a glorious gospel truth. It's an amazing truth. To understand the truth about who you and I are left to ourselves, children of wrath, and to understand that because what the Father planned and the Son accomplished and the Spirit applied, the work of the triune God, we have been brought into His family. So earlier I played for you the chorus of the old Gaither gospel song, The Family of God. Let me just read to you uh, a couple of the verses as they talk about what it means to be part of the family of God. It says, you will notice we say brother and sister around here. I know that's antiquated, but you know that in the old days, Christians used to refer to each other in this way. Why? Well, it's because we're a family, and these folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. From the door of an orphanage to the house of a king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, 
I belong. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. Let's pray.